0: The guardian.
1: By the time he gets to the edge of the woods, he has crumpled into nothing more than a whiff or a suggestion. He's only silent, warm, crepuscular danger, and the badgers and the owls have seen this before, and they know not to greet him, but to hide.
2: And welcome to our Hey! Festival special books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. We've just heard the Herefordshire-based folk duo Alula Down playing from a fabulous improv session with the writer Max Porter. More from them later. But first, Sean. to quote from our Guardian review of Porter's new fable, Lanny, we've been immersed for ten days in a dramatic chorus, a gloriously stirred cauldron of words. Does that sum it up for you?
3: Yeah, it's been really fun. Uh, what, have, what have been your highlights this year?
2: The week started with loads of panel discussions on Brexit, the conclusion of which seemed to be that it was really just a massive distraction from the serious matter of environmental meltdown. It's sort of a bit depressing, but actually it was really good to hear so many people thinking about it. And you were particularly impressed by the Labour MP David Lammy talking about the dangers of tribalism, weren't you?
3: Yeah, yeah. He gave a really sort of fantastic lecture, all sort of based around his book Tribes, which has been out for a little while. But he just spoke really convincingly and really genuinely about why we sort of need to get over the things that make us different and sort of find the things that unite us and sort of come together a little bit. What about the fun events? I mean, it's not all serious, is it? No. Well, one of the highlights for me was Jermaine Greer on Sappho. <laughs> which
2: Jermaine oh, is... always comes here, and she always does one turn, doesn't she? Where she says something naughty, which gets headlines, and then she. Says settles down and does something which is sort of serious and that was Sappho.
3: Yeah, so she did an event about Leonardo da Vinci being rubbish, basically, and then she did an event about Sappho being wonderful. um, And that was really, really fun. But it's also, as usual, every year that we come to Hay, some of the highlights are the events you don't expect to love. So I saw a uh, talk by Dr. Giles Yeo talking about the science of obesity, which was really, really interesting. And also a really great lecture that we both went to with the beaver expert, Ben Goldfarb, on why the furry critters might
2: save us all, which was really fun. (laughs) Yeah, beavers seem to... uh have suddenly developed belatedly as a bit of a theme Julia Blackburn has devoted a time song to them in her book of that name which is actually an investigation of how the world might have been when the whole of Europe was joined up in what was has become known as Doggerland and the poems actually based on a folk tale from the Dean nation of Northeast Canada but it gives a glimpse of how important beavers have been in human history a young woman she has been fasting for a long time
0: her face is painted black She wanders far off. She meets a man standing upright. She goes with him to his home by a lake. She becomes his wife. She forgets her parents. In the spring, she gives birth to four children. She works, making mats and bags. She has every kind of food from her husband, every kind of fish and small animal. She has firewood. One day, a human man passes by, and then the woman knows she has married a beaver. She has more children every spring she has more the human people kill the young beavers but they do not really kill them because the young beavers come home again the beavers in this time are very numerous they are fond of the human people they are fond of the gifts the human people give them and even if they are killed they're not really dead
2: who would have known it well to find out more about the fate of the beaver wife you'll just have to read the book Sean, one of the questions that always comes up at festivals is whether they actually change anyone's mind. Do you think they do, or do you think we're all just elites talking to ourselves?
3: Well, I don't know. I mean, yes, you can definitely say that there's a particular kind of crowd that turns up to literary festivals, no matter where they are in the world. But I think if you're sort of open to having your mind changed, literary festivals are really good for exposing you to new ideas. And one of these things for me has been meeting and talking to Elif Shafak, the Turkish novelist and the great advocate for freedom of expression, And in the week she was at Hay, she's been dealing with thousands of trolls and bots sending her abuse on social media amid a crackdown on novelists writing about sexual violence and child abuse in Turkey. And for me, the thing that she changed my mind about was the need to speak out when people are trying to silence you because you're clearly saying something important. And it's not necessarily about having people like you and agree with you all the time. Sometimes you just have to really stand up for what you believe in, even if it comes at a personal cost.
2: Here she is, with a snippet from her welcome lecture delivered this year, talking about the importance of literature in this process.
4: Of course Doris Lessing, when she said, it was, she was so right, when she said literature is analysis after the event, right? Some time has to pass, and then you need to digest what has happened, and then writers respond. But I believe in today's world, literature also has to be analysis during the event, not only after the event, because there are things we need to respond to today. And maybe as writers coming from wounded democracies like Turkey, like Nigeria, Pakistan, Egypt, Venezuela, Brazil, you know, the list is so long and it is getting longer. I think as writers coming from these countries, we did not have the luxury of being apolitical. We never had the luxury of saying, I'm going to analyze it later, because there's an urgency, there's a feeling of urgency in, in politics. My feeling is more and more Western authors are starting to feel that way. It doesn't have to mean that we always have to write political novels, we can write about anything and everything, but not to be silent about the dangers that we sense, that we see. I think that's very important. There's a saying from Adorno that I like a lot. He says, if fear and destructiveness are the major emotional sources of fascism, then love and literature belongs mainly to democracy. So love and literature has to speak louder today when democracy is in danger.
3: Every year this festival is teeming with people who are hungry to hear and exchange ideas with 275,000 tickets sold over the 10 days. So let's hear from a random selection of people in the crowds enthusing about the books that changed their minds about something important.
5: Hello, my name's Julie Leach. I'm here at the Hay Festival and I've come from Worcester today. A book that really affected the way I thought about things was The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters. It was a brilliant talk and the book was a really great follow-up to the talk in that it was very clear, accessible, easy to read, but it changed the way I was able to perceive um, my emotions and being in control of my emotions and what's going on with my emotions. And um, the analogies he uses in the book are incredibly simple and I suppose to a certain extent not real, but very effective in helping us to understand what's going on in our brain and our emotions and how we can take control of it.
6: Uh, My name's John. I'm from York. Uh, The book that changed my mind was Andrea Dworkin's Intercourse. Uh, which I read in my late teens and I must admit I have probably never been affected by a book like that ever since uh, and I hope it made me a better man, but it certainly made me question everything about masculinity for many, many years of my life.
2: My name is Penny Smith and I'm from London. The book that changed my mind is Barkskins by Annie Proulx. Um, it really opened my eyes to the massive problem of deforestation and how many trees we've lost and brought me back to an appreciation of trees and in particular the
4: wealth of British trees.
5: Hello, my name is Richard Atherton from Reading. The book Cersei by Madeline Miller has changed my view on uh, the Iliad, which is obviously an extremely masculine work. Uh, But it's not just that, it is particularly the analysis of why Achilles did what he did uh, was so subtle and has made me just totally rethink uh, the whole Trojan War.
3: Speaking of books that have taken on the Iliad with a female gaze, Pat Barker was at Hay this year talking about the silence of the girls. Here she is talking to Claire about both the women and the men of Greek mythology.
2: So talk a little bit about the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. Are they gay? Who knows? (laughs) Um,
0: About all you can say, I mean, just confining it to Homer, Achilles' grief for Patroclus is both extremely deep and it's also very, very physical. And you can grieve deeply for a friend, but it doesn't normally take this form of craving for the physical essence of that person. And you would have to say that Achilles' grief for Patroclus does have that physicality about it. But at the same time, it's an extraordinarily deep relationship because they grew up as foster brothers and they then became comrades in arms and they have fought a war with many, many dangers by land and sea for a solid 10 years. And uh, we shouldn't, you know, we're a society where men don't regularly join the armed forces and go off to war. It's become very much a professional matter. But we mustn't forget that the relationship between men who are comrades in battle is very, very, very deep and passionate, even if they don't talk about it much. It is an incredibly deep relationship. So, there's all that. And I think what it all adds up to is almost a fusing of identities. I say at one point, what you know, she watches them on the beach, and she, um, not doing anything sexual, they are, but they are physically close. They're resting their foreheads against each other. And she says, what I saw on the beach was beyond sex, and perhaps even beyond love. And that's a difficult idea. But I think there are relationships where there is a fusion of identity, uh, as for example, between a mother and a newborn, very small child. And it makes it very, very difficult to survive the death of that person. Because you have, in a sense, lost a whole chunk of your identity. And that, I think, is what happens to Achilles. And in a sense, it drives him mad He becomes a wild beast for a time.
2: And one of the ways in which you express it or dramatize it is through the suit of armor, is through them wearing physically the same suit of armor. Yes, that's right.
0: And so Achilles watches Patroclus on the battlefield wearing his armor and wearing his uh, helmet And he gets this delusion, partly sunstroke, that he's actually watching himself. And then for a split second, he's actually inside the helmet with blows raining down onto it. And then he has to go inside and cool, and literally cool off a bit. Yes, it it is uh, a a fused identity, I think. Right, that's enough about the
2: men. Now let's go on to the women. Yeah. One of the, this novel has been shortlisted, is shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, and the cent, at the centre of it is, and also the most controversial bit of it in a way, is your reimagining of the women and the giving of the voice to women. And um, you've been criticised for what you do with Helen. So I wondered if you could maybe read just a teeny bit, that little bit about Helen. It's yeah. actually my favourite bit of the, of the novel, but oh, um, good. it frames the controversy. Uh, Briseis, when she's
0: a very young girl, is sent to stay with her married sister in Troy. And while there, she is, um, I'll just get my glasses, befriended by Helen, who is herself quite an isolated figure in Troy, because the, understandably the Trojan women aren't exactly fond of her. Sometimes, Helen would go into the inner room, even before I left, and then I'd hear the chattering of the loom, the rattle as the shuttle flew to and fro. There was a legend, it tells you everything, really, that whenever Helen cut a thread in her weaving, a man died on the battlefield. She was responsible for every death. And then, one day, she showed me her work I've known some great weavers in my life, including some of the women in the camp. The seven girls Achilles captured when he took Lesbos, they were brilliant, no other word for it, they were brilliant. But even they weren't as good as Helen. I wandered round the room looking at the tapestries while Helen sat at the loom and sipped her wine. Half a dozen huge battle scenes covered the walls, a sequence that, taken together, told the whole story of the war so far. Hand to hand combat, men decapitated, gutted, skewered, filleted, disemboweled, and riding high above the carnage in their glittering chariots, the kings Menelaus, Agamemnon, Odysseus, Diomedes, Idomeneo, Ajax, Nestor. I knew Menelaus had been her husband before she ran away with Paris, but her voice didn't change when she mentioned his name. Did she point to Achilles that day? I think she must have done, but I really don't remember. The Trojans were there too, of course, Priam looking down from the battlements, and below him, on the battlefield, his eldest son, Hector, defending the gates. No Paris, though. Paris seemed to be fighting the war from his bed. On the rare occasions I saw them together, it was obvious even to a child that Helen preferred Hector to Paris, whom I think she'd grown to despise. His reluctance to go anywhere near the battlefield was notorious, as was Hector's contempt for his brother's cowardice. When I'd finished walking round the tapestries, I went round again, because I wanted to check something I didn't understand. She's not there, I said to my sister that night after dinner. She's not in the tapestries. Priam's there, but she isn't. No, well, of course she isn't. She she won't know where to put herself until she knows who's won. (laughs) (laughs) There was so much... Bitterness in that remark, and it wasn't the routine malice of the other Trojan women, but something altogether deeper. Looking back, I wonder whether my dumpy, plain sister wasn't slightly in love with Helen. I was probably a little in love with her myself.
2: So Helen's tapestries are a way of saying, I was there, but she didn't put herself into them. Th- yes. That's quite a complicated concept. Yes,
0: yes. But she, in that, that, that's probably a final tapestry with her on the arm of Melaleus, <laughs> restored to her rightful husband. And to being queen
2: of Argos, and the thing that you've been criticised for, although I have to say it's a very mild, it was a very mild criticism. It's a sort of criticism that people have to do to show that they've actually read the book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Really, and it was to say, say she's anac- that's anachronistic for Helen to have such subjectivity in in terms of telling a story. I'm afraid Helen's
0: tapestries are in Homer. The only person in the Iliad who is doing what Homer did is Helen. She told the story of the war in thread, wool. He told it in words. Uh, there are—you uh, could argue that some of some of what things Helen says about the Trojan women and uh, you know the way they copied her eye makeup and that kind of thing—it probably is anachronistic. But I mean, there are lots of deliberate anachronisms in this book because I am not writing history. I am retelling a myth. History is then myth is now, myth is about what we do now. And one way to remind the reader of that is to include anachronisms. But also when people say, well, you know, a woman of Helen's time and social class uh, wouldn't say something like that. A, Helen never existed. (laughs) B, she hatched from a swan's egg. And if you're saying, women who hatched from swan's eggs, don't say things like that. You've got to say, well, what's the size of your sample?
2: (laughs) The great Pat Barker, who incidentally, we wish all the best for the Women's Prize, which is happening on Wednesday, the day after this podcast goes out. Well, one of the themes that has emerged for me this year is the question of how fiction responds to our increasingly catastrophic times. Here's the Indian novelist Amitav Ghosh in a session about his new novel, Gun Island. Now, you, as well as writing novels, you're a polemicist, an essay writer, and um, your book before this was The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, in which, I don't know whether anybody's read it, but it's a fantastic provocation, which is about the sort of central thesis is why has the novel not dealt with yet caught up with what's happening in climate change. So writers like Arundhati Roy, for example, who writes in non-fiction about the effects of environmental degradation, it hasn't yet gone into her fiction. Um, will you talk a little bit about that, about your thesis there?
7: Yes. Well, uh, you, know, uh, you know, because of uh, writing uh, books like The Hungry Tide and so on, I became sort of very interested in what's happening in the, you know, in the world around us, in the... So I followed it more and more closely, you know, these developments. And in 2014, 2015, it became kind of an obsession with me, and I began to wonder, you know, uh, these terrible things are happening in the world, and anyone who's following it knows that it's only going to get worse. So why is literature not dealing with the subject head on? And here I must say that, you know, my argument in the book is that it's not just that uh, writers who need to deal with this, and in fact, it's the case that many writers have tried to confront uh, these issues in very inventive ways. It's the broader ecosystem of, uh, of the literary world that has marginalized this kind of writing, you know. Because even, even when very well known writers like, say, Barbara Kingsolver or someone uh, writes a book uh, about these uh, issues, uh, like she did uh, in Flight Behaviour. The most important literary journals don't take those books seriously. They treat them as, uh, they treat them as genre fiction, fantasy, whatever. Or they, they don't review them. Uh, the big uh, literary journals review many nonfiction books about these issues, but very rarely fiction. So I started asking myself the question, I mean, wh- uh, wh- uh, what is it about climate change that confounds the techniques of uh, the modern novel, if you like. And, you know, that led me back to this very odd experience I had uh, as a student uh, when I was um, 21 in Delhi University. Uh, one day I was uh, sitting in the library. In, it, it, was a, it was in March, I think. I was sitting in, uh, April, yes. I was sitting in a, in a library in uh, Delhi University, you know, working away, and the weather became very odd. Uh, there were, you know, huge clou- strange uh, clouds in the sky, hail, etc. So I decided uh, to stop working, and I went outside, and I decided to go and visit a friend. So this took me on a road uh, which I never went onto as a rule. It was completely out of my way. So I went onto this road, and I was walking down this road. I saw my friend, and then I was walking back, and the weather turned order and order. So I decided to go back to my room. I came out and when I was walking down this road, I heard a sound and I saw people looking up. So I looked over my shoulder and I saw this immense gray cloud, you know, in the sky. And as I was looking at it, a sort of strange spinning thing came out of it. You know, like a spinning finger and it was coming directly down towards where I was standing. So I had the presence of mind. I mean, now I I suppose I would have stopped to take a selfie. but (laughs) (laughs) And would not now be here to tell the tale. I had the common sense, uh, you know, to to, uh, take shelter. So I ran to a door. There was this huge glass door, but there were many people there. So I ran around, and then I threw myself into a small balcony. And then I looked up, and there was this sort of, this completely surreal thing of uh, seeing... uh, Uh, you know, like scooters and bicycles and lampposts and entire stalls, just hurtling through the sky in front of my eyes. And, uh, you know, it lasted for about 15 seconds and then it was gone. And then it, uh, you know, it it stopped. And I went back to the place where I first thought of taking shelter and I looked and all those people were dreadfully injured because the glass doors had broken. You know, I can't even explain to you this utter devastation all around. I mean, entire walls had been taken out of buildings. You know, in India, we have fans on top. The fans had been twisted into these tulip shapes. Buses had been carried over walls. Something like 30 or 40 people died. You know, and so there I was, completely randomly, walking down a road that I never take, For exactly the five seconds that the only known tornado in the history of this area struck down, you know, in this place. So it was a complete Black Swan event, utterly improbable. But, you know, as a writer, we all uh, mine our own experiences. And for me, this was an incredibly powerful experience. And then, book after book, every time I tried to write about this. You know, I tried to introduce a scene where, you know, some character is walking down a road and suddenly a tornado comes down and strikes the character. And I could never do it. Why? Because it just seemed so improbable. Uh, You know, the reader won't believe it. So, you know, what happens in real life is actually much more improbable than what is allowed to happen in a book. Uh, that's the strange sort of, uh, that's strange sort of uh, paradox of the modern novel.
2: Do you think Amitav is right? Yeah, well, it's certainly a theme that's been knocking around a lot in the sessions I've chaired. John Lanchester, for example, whose, whose latest novel, The Wall, is a dystopia, a very grim dystopia set after a great climatic disaster, talks about the importance of the imagination in forming an optimistic vision of the future and the, the moral obligation to have such a thing. So the big question that comes out of it is are you absolutely incurably pessimistic or is there a little bit of optimism in you?
6: No, I'm deeply optimistic on that, and I think my main ambition for the book is to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I'll take any form of wrongness. I'll take you know, just wrong about the science uh, or ro- wrong about it not happening. Uh, and I'd really like, as far as I can do anything possible to prevent that world from coming about, I, I would really love that you know because we can't bequeath that world it would be a shameful thing to do to have not acted and to have left that world to the future and that's why i think that there's actually a moral obligation to be optimistic because if we're pessimistic we'll despair and if we despair this will happen if we despair we won't act and this will happen and and we we morally can't let that happen. So I think it's... And it would be one thing if that's what the science said. If the IPCC was saying, you know, we're doomed, it's finished, it's all over, that would be a hard thing to hear, but that would be what the science was. But it's not what the science is saying. The IPCC conference at Katowice end of last year said it's still possible to keep the world to one5 degrees of warming since the end of the Industrial Revolution. We've had about one degree already, so another 0.5. And that's no paradise. It leaves the oceans still getting warmer for centuries to come because of residual heat effects. But it's incomparably better than the world even two degrees warmer, which is the, the, the Paris target, the, the target in the Paris Accords, uh, which was the previous one. And as the UN says here, yeah, that's tens of millions of lives prevented from catastrophic negative impacts. Just that difference, 1.5 degree to 2 degrees. Tens of millions of lives. Every tenth of a degree is hugely consequential for millions and millions and millions of people. And the fact that the science says we can do that is uh, incredibly powerful and a real source of hope. As I uh, I say again, we actually are morally obliged to be hopeful because that's the basis on which we will act.
2: Mm -hmm. James Lovelock, one of the things he said was sooner or later Gaia will cough and it'll cough humanity off the surface of the earth and then it will carry on and how that in a way how that reflects in the project of a novel is incident and in a way your novel coughs in the middle doesn't it it has a cough there is an attack
6: so I was wondering if
2: just before we open it out into into public questions whether you would just read the bit about the attack which is when everything changes
6: we're trying not to give away various plot things but there is a, a shift in the middle of the book and it happens after this in the course of their night shift on the wall, they brought snacks. And this is the point where the cook, Mary, has just arrived on her bike with some snacks. Oh, she said when she arrived, hello, darling. I swear I'm getting more unfit the longer I do this. That doesn't make sense, does it? It should be the other way around. Coffee and a biscuit, not in that order. Here, hold this. She reached into her shoulder bag and was holding a packet of biscuits. I remember thinking, chocolate and orange jam, my favourite. I took them and put down my rifle on the bench, still within arm's reach, as per the rules, and unhooked my metal cup from the outside of my rucksack while she fiddled with the thermos. I was glad it was coffee rather than tea, because although the tea tasted better, the coffee was more effective at keeping me awake. As I reached forward to pour it, I saw she'd spilt it over herself, though spilt it in a strange place, along her throat and the front top of her waterproof, and I thought, that's weird. I know she can be clumsy, but how did Mary manage to pour the coffee upwards, somehow to throw it upwards over herself? She made a small noise, a bit like the oof when she stopped her bike, but quieter, more involuntary. She sounded surprised. She dropped the thermos and looked down at herself, and then all at once several things happened, simultaneously but also slowly. The liquid was a strange colour, a strange texture too. Mary was backlit, a lamp behind her, so I couldn't see her properly. And I realised, yes, it was the texture that was wrong, not the colour. The way the wetness was thick, but also moving too fast for a mere spill. It can't be coffee. Can she have spilt food on herself? But no, it's a liquid. But no, it's wrong for water. And it's not spilling, it's pumping. It's not been poured over her, it's coming out of her. There's only one thing it can be, it's blood. But how can it be blood? It's not a nosebleed. She hasn't thrown blood up on herself. That would be a very serious illness, one that had you throwing blood up on yourself. Anyway, it's not coming out of her mouth, it's coming from further down. It's pumping out of her. I swear, I can remember this whole train of thought, a line of argument running through my mind as if I was, I don't know, defending a PhD thesis or something. It can only have taken a tiny fraction of a second, and then I understood. Mary had been hit by a bullet or a knife or something similar. It was a very bad wound, and she probably wouldn't survive. We were under attack. The others had come.
2: The others had come. The moment. On a slightly more local level, Linda Grant explained why in A Stranger City, her recent portrayal of Brexit London, she felt compelled to tear a hole in the fabric of realism to reveal a rather sinister hidden community of tinkers and elephants. But then there's Max Porter, whose novel Lanny is unlike anything else I've read or indeed heard. On one level, it's the story about a young boy who goes missing. On the other, it's a great brew of folk whisperings involving a sinister spirit of the land called Dead Papa Toothwort, and a rebel artist known as Mad Pete, who talk in alternate sections. Here they are.
6: He has been represented on
4: keystones,
1: decorative stencils, tattoos cricket club logo he's been every english trinket and trash moral for cash mascot and curse he's been in story form in every bedroom of every house of this place he's in them like water animal vegetable mineral they build new homes cutting into his belt and he pops up adapted to scare and define in this place he is as old as time We commence our lessons, we're indoors because mile-wide slabs of rain romp across the valley. Pallet knife smears of bad weather rush past the window. Two chairs pulled up to the kitchen table, snug, fire on, radio three. Two pads, two pencils, a tumbler of juice, a mug of tea. Oh, Lanny, my friend, look at these blank pages. Don't you feel like God at the start of the ages? You can do anything. So go, I said, draw me a man. What man? Oh, just a person, something human. I tossed a little coin in my head between tree and man, and it landed man, so let's start with that. His shoulders roll over right slightly higher as his arms hug the page, and he starts to scratch away with a soft hum come whisper of half-words and trickling bits of melody. He's concentrating, he's not a rusher. He scratches his head and sits up and slides the drawing over with a furrowed brow. Right, I say, yep. Let's look at this. I'd say that's a man, all right? Nicely done. Now... If we may, let's talk our way around him a little bit. You've got this bloke's arms coming right out the side of his body. What do you reckon? We turn sideways and spread our arms. Two aeroplanes at the kitchen table. Lanny smiles, nods down to his shoulder and then starts a new pair of arms emerging from the right height, not out the poor bastard's centre. Now the head, Lanny. Might I ask you to consider your own self and see if there's anything between your head and your chest? He grins and points to his neck, feigning discovery. We laugh, we're pleased, we chink drinks and raise a toast to our better-looking image of a man. Long after he's gone, after that first lesson, I sit and think. I try and recreate the noises Lanny makes while he draws his part-song chant. Limna, 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 I don't know what it is, I suppose it's a TV theme or a pop song, I don't know, but maybe it's just Lanny taking things from wherever he's been listening, soaking up the sounds of this world and spinning out threads of another. I wait. Breeze obedient balls of dust and fluff huddle in the corners of the kitchen. I remember how grey I felt in the busy days when my work was selling suddenly when people wanted things from me all the time and knew my name, in London. And I feel my way back to before that, to days of clarity like this, to being a child. I remember an elderly lady once showed me my own drawing of a man and asked me to consider where anatomically my arms began. That lady is a long time dead. English seasons roll out of bed. Dead Papa Toothwort has some rules like never trust cats, never kiss a badger, always lick a new flavour pesticide, only eat what yields to a twist and make sure, at the summer of fate, to get amongst the folk who dress up as Toothwort. Every year, in the costumes and in the posture, in the ligaments and juices of his worshippers, he must himself move. <laughs>
5: yeah,
6: yeah.
1: Idiots, racket. I thought they could sell the old bar. Rodney, Rodney, Rodney is a liar, darling. Mm. There you go on your FACE. His dogs His dog's
5: called the the and
3: is dogs
8: Couple Souls Rally.
3: Street has suggested right. second week in
8: August.
5: So it's so it's right. a a
8: I went into town. Sky V Nick's
5: been tired. fired. is regulation is isn't a bit of a population?
1: It's us. it's us versus us us them, and it's always been us. What then? Polish adverts in the parish Thirsty work. Smelled. Listening to all this. More talk than ever. Because welcome hobbyists. He's George. so thirsty from watching all the adorable decomposition and keeping up with all the grinding lyric practical nonsense of their days. my i oh, f- mm, We can't just stop our two years no in a no row. No exchange, amigo. Trust him with your kids. Man, so a a friends. Friends. See if we
3: get any rain. It's
1: a crib, it's not a bubble. It's,
3: it's
1: a great, great, happy alcohol, my Big no
2: biscuits, Big no
1: biscuits let stay and play. It was about to He peers into the kitchen of the boy's house and watches the child drinking milk and he imagines the cold liquid pouring into the boy's belly, trickle-puddle pond lake, into the cellular cathedrals of his organs, into his bones. Dead Papa Toothwort is drunk on the hydration and nourishment of the boy, glorious he sings as he swings his way back into the woods. Flinging himself in 30-foot arcs between telegraph poles. Dressed as a barn owl with car-tire arms. Glorious trick of the species.
2: That was Max Porter with Alula Down, aka Mark Waters and Kate Gathercole. I have to say, that it was one of the richest and strangest sessions I've experienced this year. Hi, my name is Rowan and I'm from Leicester and the book that changed my mind is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's a psychology book and he, he talks about the biases and um, heuristics and biases he, he mentions about our mind and the unconscious processes that it goes through to make decisions that we think are statistical but are just a result of a bias that we don't know about, and I, it changed how I thought about my own brain, which is quite an unsettling thing, but it's yeah, it's been a really rewarding book for me.
4: My name is Emma, Karen daughter, and I come from Malmö in Sweden, and a book that changed my perspective as a teenager was reading Toni Morrison, Playing in the Dark. The book is a bunch of lectures that she held at an American university, and uh, it's about whiteness in uh, in literature and she wrote about Ernest Hemingway and she said that Eddie is white you know that because no one says it it's never even mentioned so that made me realize what being what being white is that it's such a it's a privilege and you people assume you are until you're not in literature and uh, that sucks <laughs> Um, my name's
8: Ellen. I come from Cardiff. And a book that changed my mind was *Holes* by Louis Sacco. Um I was normally reading books that were always about girls and, like, fantasy, and they were like comedy more than serious. And when I read *Holes*, it was about a boy, and I don't normally read books about boys. And it was really. Different, and it made me feel like I wasn't in my bedroom but that I was actually there with the character that I was hearing everything that he heard and seeing everything that he saw.
3: One of the many young readers at Hay.
2: There were also a lot of children's writers and young adult panels this year. You chaired a couple, didn't you, Sean? I have to say, we're a bit bad about covering YA fiction on this podcast, so let us know if you've made any discoveries.
3: Yeah, actually, I did. So there were a couple. There's A a, a Sky Painted Gold by Laura Wood, which is a really wonderful YA novel set in the 1920s. It sort of has a Gatsby edge to it, but it's kind of like a Regency romance in tone, and it was just a really warm and enjoyable book. You really wanted the characters to get together in the end, and I'm not really spoiling anything to say that they do, and I was really happy about it. Um, There was also I Am Thunder by Mohammed Khan, which is a really timely novel about Islamic extremism, particularly how young British Muslim women are very vulnerable to being radicalised. But it's such, I I, I couldn't believe really how spot on it felt uh, given the news events of the last year. So I think it's a really, really important YA book that everyone should be reading. But one of the most controversial YA books this year has been My Brother's Name is Jessica by John Boyne, who regular listeners might recall coming on the podcast last year to discuss his adult novel, A Ladder to the Sky. Boyne has come in for a lot of flack for this latest book about a boy coming to terms with an older sibling's transition from male to female, particularly over the title and the choice of gender pronoun. But here he is talking to Daniel Hahn about how he felt about that criticism.
9: In terms of who can tell these stories, you know, there's this awful thing, uh, from from my opinion, an awful thing. Now this hashtag, own voices, you know, that people can only write about their own experiences and stories. And my experience of as a reader and as a writer is the is the opposite of that. I've always said the worst advice you can give a young writer is to write about what you know, write about what you don't know, and learn about it. It's If we only write about what we know, it's all autobiography. I've never, until The History of Loneliness and The Heart's Invisible Furies, all my books were set in, you know, maybe there was a First World War soldier, there was a novel in the Holocaust, there was a novel in the Russian Revolution, a novel on the bounty. I've never been in any of those places, I've never done any of those things, and nobody ever criticized me for it. Um, If we say that we can only write from our own experiences, the corollary of that is, for example, a transgender writer can only write about transgender characters. Um, and I don't feel that it's my job as a reader or a writer to tell anybody what they can or cannot write. You know, are only criminals around write crime books? You know, it, it just we, we're supposed to use our imaginations to put ourselves into the lives and the bodies of others. Now, we may do that well, we may do it badly. The book could be a masterpiece or it could be horrendous, it could be a, a travesty. But I do not want to work in a, in a literary world where people think they have the right to tell me what I can and cannot write because I will never tell anybody else what they can and cannot write. Are there different responsibilities, though, if you're telling stories that are
6: not anywhere close to your experience and of people whose voices themselves have been marginalized, maybe
9: historically? It's, it's, it, there are the same responsibilities. You know, your, your responsibility is to the story, to make authentic characters. I'm not sure that I would say that I have any more responsibility, say, towards a transgender character than I do towards a soldier who died in the First World War. Their experiences are are equally important and worthy of representation in fiction. My responsibility as a writer is to represent that as well as I possibly can, as a writer. So, you know, I, I I find it a very troubling notion, to be honest, and the the things that people say you know stay in your lane and uh, you know it, it's uh, it's arrogant and it's a lot of the time it's about people trying to tell you that they're morally superior to you you know that they know uh, how these things should be written i grew up as you say gay in ireland at a time when homosexuality was a criminal offense it wasn't decriminalized until i was in university so Nobody can turn around to me and tell me that I don't know what it's like to be to use one of my favourite writers, John Irving's phrases, a sexual misfit. I do. I know something about that experience. I don't know about... I'm not trans. I don't have that experience. But I know what it is like to grow up feeling different in some way. But even if I didn't, that should not prevent me from writing that book. You know, as far as I know, you are neither gay nor trans. You can write this as much as I can. It's... I know it, it... I've got, so, I've taken some heat over this, but from people who, who disagree with me, and I respect their right to disagree. But uh, literature, to me, I mean, you mentioned about the title. You know, I had people messaging me saying the title was misgendering, and it should have been called. You know, my sister's name is Jessica. I mean, it's the most boring title in the world. You know, this is a novel. You know, I want somebody to walk into a bookshop, see this on sort the of thing, and say. That's an unusual title. What is that? You know, you take it down, you read about it. The whole point is it's Sam saying this. He's saying, you know, it's getting him from saying that to saying the sentences at the very, in the last page of the book. You know, it, like to, to just tell somebody to be so politically correct about it and to be so, I mean, some people, it, it, it must be painful to be so woke all the time
3: that's it for us from Hay this year. Next
2: week, we time travel with novelist Sandra Newman and her latest book, The Heavens. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.
3: But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and me, Claire Armistead, and everyone at Hay, including our wonderful Hay helpers, George Brooker and Mia Colleran, and our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
2: And just to play us out in the manner of the last two weeks, here's another ditty from Alula
1: Down. So she left and I sat and I breathed in the atmosphere of her visit and I thought a lot about women growing up and being a girl in the world and I missed my mum and I missed my sister and some women that I have known. And I carefully laid tiny flakes of gold onto the skull of a robin and hummed old sprig of time to myself
8: Once I had a sprig of time It prospered by night and by day Till a false young man came according to me And he stole